This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On today's podcast, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that started a direct-to-consumer bike company to cut out the middleman retailers and has had 100% growth year over year. In this episode, you'll learn how to beat your competitors by not marketing your product, but marketing an aspirational lifestyle that's tied to your product, how they bootstrapped an inventory-heavy business without any significant outside investments, and what is a sourcing agent, why you need to hire one if you are sourcing overseas, and how they use their sourcing agent to help them scale their business smoothly. Today, I'm joined by Ben Petralia from SoleilBicycles.com. That's S-O-L-E-B-I-C-Y-C-L-E-S.com. Soleil Bicycles sells bicycles and got their start as selling fixed gear bicycles and it sells much more today. We're starting in 2009 and based out of Venice, California. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Felix. How are you? Good. So tell us a little bit more about your story and what are some of the most popular products that you sell? Yeah, uh, it's actually a long kind of complex story a bit more than just selling bicycles out of Venice. So in 2009, we were all college students. Half of us were at USC, half of us were at Chapman University in Orange, California. Um, we met through mutual friends, and at the time, we were all riding beach cruisers or riding sketchy bikes that we had bought off Craigslist for $60, whatever it was, right? And we went into a bike shop to kind of take the next step to get a cool bike that we could ride to the bars, to friends' houses, to commute to campus, whatever it was. Um, and in the bike shop, we were addressed by a salesman, and the salesman was like, hey, do you want this Trek? Do you want this Specialized? Do you want the Schwinn? It'll be $800, $900, and it's got 17 gears. You'll have to bring it in for maintenance all the time. We're like, okay, this system is kind of broken, right? Um, the bike shop wasn't user-friendly. It was very price prohibitive. So we said we can change that. And this was at, at the time when a lot of e-commerce businesses were starting up. We were saying we could cut out the middleman. That was the bike shop. We could ship it direct to the consumer while at the same time making a fashion-forward product that was easy to ride, minimal, and just fun in general. Um, so that was kind of the idea. And then we put together a business plan, entered in a couple of collegiate business plan competitions, won a little bit of money, like not a, not a big sum of money, took that money, flew overseas, found a manufacturer, designed this bike from the ground up with that manufacturer, brought it back to a frat house, sold 100 of them to our friends, and that's how we started the business. Now today, uh, we focused and shifted a little bit uh, to really investing into creating a lot of content and the aspirational lifestyle brand and pinpointing the bike as the paramount of that kind of aspirational lifestyle vision, um, much like Beats by Dre does with headphones. But we still always have maintained that e-commerce, cutting out the middleman, passing the savings on to the consumer kind of ethos. And that's really what's been successful for us over the last, what has it been, seven years now. Um, yeah, so that's basically an overview of the company uh, and where we're at today. It's awesome. I think uh, there's a lot of great things you said in there, so let's kind of unpack this and work through it. So you said that you guys noticed that there was this opportunity in the marketplace. Um, you guys are still in college at this time? Yeah, we were still all in college. Yeah, so was there anyone already 
doing something similar at the time where they were selling direct to consumers and skipping out on the middleman? And were you ever kind of concerned about any competition that was already in a space, you know, given that you guys, you know, were in college, didn't really have like, quote unquote, real life experience at that time? Like, tell us about maybe what your feelings were at that time in terms of like the seeing what the landscape uh, was already. So at the time, uh, we were the first people to do it. Um, we were the first people to take a bike, package it 90% assembled, and ship it to your house with ease of assembly and like this full-on e-commerce shopping experience. So at the time, we weren't really worried about uh, competition. And we didn't really like see that as our main focus, uh, per se, like in terms of optimizing the website and all that stuff, because we were the only people to do it. So people mm. knew if they wanted to go online, buy a bike 90% assembled through an easy shopping experience, they would go to Soleil. And at the time, SEO too was kind of like the wild, wild west. Um, so there were a lot of tricks that we were able to do to target users in different locations very organically um, through a lot of really targeted SEO stuff. So yeah, not being like being in college and not having any quote unquote real world experience. We all came from different backgrounds. Uh, a couple of us were from musical backgrounds, having worked as interns at music festivals, and then a couple of us were from digital backgrounds, working at SEO firms as interns over the summer. And then I myself was from more so a fashion background, um, running a fashion blog and attending various fashion events throughout uh, the earlier years of my college experience. So. To answer your question, yeah, we, we were kind of the first to do it. Uh, so we didn't really see the threat of competition when we started. But obviously, some people have come into the space since then. And the landscape has changed a lot, um, which I can go into in more detail. So now we've kind of had a bit more of a strategy shift to take on some of that competition. Cool. Yeah, let's dive into that in a second. Um, so once you guys had this idea for, you saw this gap in the marketplace, you had this idea, you decided to sit down and put together a business plan, enter some competitions. Can you tell us about that process of coming up with a business plan and maybe what you learned throughout that process? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. Um, I think the thing that we learned the most and kind of learned the hard way was figuring out the market size and then figuring out realistically how much of that market we could hope to segment off. Um, and we use some kind of reports that are available online that kind of go into the bicycle industry as a whole and then really dove into our sector of the bicycle industry and then realistic goals of what percent of market share we could take. That whole process, I think, was probably one of the biggest challenges because uh, it's just such a macro thing trying to figure out uh, exactly what your niche of the market is. And uh, that took the most time. We got a lot of feedback from a lot of different people and a lot of criticism from a lot of different people. Yeah, I think this is an, an exercise that that a lot of people do, at least on the back of an envelope or in their head when they're first starting out. You know, saying like, "Oh, there's a you know billion dollar market. Well, I can just get like you know one tenth of a percent of this. I'll be a millionaire, or you know whatever that kind of line of thinking is." But you guys, you know, purposely spent a lot of time. It sounds like uh, into getting nailing down that number. So once you had that number of the the market share, you'd be able to carve out. What could you do with that? Like you know, knowing that, what can you do? How can you use that information for your business? just really shows the validity and the potential of mm -hmm. the opportunity. Like showing that, hey, we know that we can carve out this percentage of this segment of the market is like, okay, so there is a viable audience for this. It really just kind of proves that um, to whoever's reviewing the plan. And then from there, that was always like the starting point. And then from there, it was all about the devils in the details of how we're going to attack that segment of the market, how we're going to communicate with them, how we're going to drive them to a platform, and how we're going to eventually get them to make a purchase. 
Mm, okay, makes sense. So, do you remember what that number was originally? And now that you guys are, uh, you know, coming up, I guess, on your seventh year of of uh, being in business, how did you how did you fare? Did you did you feel like you hit that that target? So, I don't remember exactly what the number was originally because it was so long ago. Yeah. Um, but I would say there were some ups and downs. So, I, the original goal or the original idea was the business was, okay, we're going to win this business plan competition, we're going to take the money, we're going to design the bike, we're going to sell our first round of bikes, and then we're going to go out and we're going to raise some more money. And that is when the issue really arose for us, because we were just a bunch of college kids out there trying to raise money from VCs, from angels, from like all these people in the industry. And it was really, really challenging for us with no experience, with a weak management team, and that really hindered us a lot. Um, so we weren't able to get that million dollar seed round and go out and really blow this thing up. And we had to kind of bootstrap it and really, really become lean and build the business off the profits, which is what we did over the last seven years. And until this past year, we were never able to get any proper funding besides small loans from friends and family. Um, this past year, though, we were able to take down a small business loan from an incredible bank um, and we were able to secure a line of credit. So now we have some wiggle room and some proper funding. But to this day, the business has still maintained all the equity between the partners. We've never sold a piece of it or anything like that, um, which really hindered us from hitting that goal that we had originally because we mm. thought, oh, it's going to be easy. We're going to win this business plan competition. We're going to raise a bunch of money. We're going to have huge marketing spend. We're going to have a huge team. We're going to really scale and ramp. But we kind of had to struggle through that process and really be bootstrapped and really be lean for a long, long time. Uh, until this past year when we were finally able to secure some funding. Yeah, there's kind of two camps on this idea, right? Whether whether you should bootstrap and go lean and you know maybe use your own savings, maybe friends and family round at the most, which is the route that you guys went versus trying to go big and trying to get a lot of investment, get a lot of capital early on so you can blow it up sooner. So it sounds like because of your, like you're saying, your management team, you guys being new in the, I guess, the business space, maybe it was harder for you guys to secure that, that investment early on. But it sounds like now it's kind of paying off because you guys still own 100% of the company. Do you think at that moment though, when you got, or maybe did you ever consider at that moment when you guys were having difficulty getting investments early on? I think what I've seen a lot of other companies do is that they then go out and look for a CEO or somebody that can come on a management team that has a lot more experience that is you know, probably older to come in. Did you ever consider going that route? We did. And we, uh, we went through a couple people actually, um, and it just it never worked out for us. We never found the, the right person to fill the role and who had the same ideals as us. Um, we, we found some people that were able to help. Like we found a CFO that was really reputable and a bit older and was able to start garnishing some rapport with banks and investors. And we went on a roadshow and we showed like our business to a bunch of different people. But we were never able to make anything work. And I think just to speak to the two camp idea, um, I think it's great to bootstrap, and I think if you have a business that allows that, like it's amazing. But for us, our business is so inventory heavy, and mm. the inventory is so expensive that when you're buying a thousand bikes uh, and dumping your bank account for like a couple hundred thousand bucks to purchase that inventory itself, uh, it just it's a really hard thing to do to continue to bootstrap uh, while you're dumping that much money into inventory on like a monthly or a quarterly basis, whatever it is. 
Um, yeah, so you were saying uh, saying that uh, you did try to get some, uh, I guess, more experienced managers and management team to come in. And I could imagine, too, that if you take that go that route, you kind of have to give up some of the reins, you know, of, of this business. And I'm not sure, maybe we should have dived into this first, but I'm not sure exactly why you started the business. But for a lot of people, they want that kind of control over their life. And then you're now, you know, you're a group of friends and, and founders, and now you're bringing someone from the outside in that wasn't necessarily there from the beginning. Did that add any kind of, I guess, not necessarily issues, but did that kind of give you guys pause on whether you should go that route or not? Not really. Um, we, we did end up bringing somebody on, um, but it was someone that fit the bill. And mm-hmm. I think the issue, the reason we started the business really realistically was because we wanted to make bikes that were affordable to the mass market. And we wanted to change the way that bikes were distributed. And we wanted to just put more people on bikes. Interesting statistic, mm-hmm. 75% of our customers today haven't ridden a bike since they were a little kid. Wow. Uh, so they, they just want an easy option that's affordable, that's beautiful, user-friendly, that they can just pick up off the shelf and ride down the Santa Monica boardwalk, right? Like mm-hmm. that's kind of the dream that we sell. And uh, so I, I think one of the biggest hindrances was a lot of these older people had more of like an old school idea of the distribution model. Um, they wanted us to go completely vertical, own a factory, own a warehouse, like own a bunch of shops, sell up all the traditional brick and mortar bike shops. And like that was never within the core of our business. It was an elevated shopping experience. It was communicating our brand message at any touch point where our product is and we were never able to find anyone from a very, very senior perspective that understood that. Albeit, we were able to find the CEFO guy who was he was great. He was a bit younger. He was still in his like early or no late twenties, early thirties, um, and he he got it. You know, he got what we wanted to do. Um, so I think that was the reason that it worked. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, so I want to kind of circle back around to the original question about how you were able to come up with your number in terms of the market share that you'd be able to capture. And I think this is an important exercise to go through, not just because of the reason why you guys used it, which is uh, you know for business plans and uh, and then when you guys are trying to get investing investment rounds, but it sounds like you also did it just to know if it's viable or not before you spent all this time or resources into trying to kind of attack this market share. So can you give us, um, and this is, you know, I guess a while ago for you, but if someone out there that wants to go through this exercise, are there any particular tools or kind of tips along the way that they should keep in mind as they're trying to figure out what market share they could capture? Definitely, definitely. There's some tricks for sure. Um, we use something called the IBS annual report, um, which is a report put together that looks at the entire industry in a full in-depth breakdown. And so, so we use that and we basically saw within that report, here's the bicycle manufacturing market as a whole. Here is our segment of the bicycle manufacturing. And we p- plug that as the 700C, um, which is the size of the wheel on the bicycle. And we saw that that trend was growing. And um, not to get too technical with it, the 700C is a tire size used on most road bikes. So we saw that people using more and more road bikes uh, could be really beneficial for us to tap into. Since then, if I was going to start this business today, there are a lot more resources now. Uh, The New York Times is talking about it. The Wall Street Journal is talking about it. And they're all talking about the idea of the leisure bike market, which is exactly the idea that we're selling. People that want bicycles for leisurely use, that want them to be easy, that want them to be cheap. And that whole kind of enclave has been sparked by the city bikes of the world and just mm-hmm. cities in general getting more bike friendly. And 
So there's a lot of stuff like Google Trends, like using the IBS reports. There's so many factors that you can use to bring validity to your idea. Um, and there's a lot of resources out there now. And if you can catch it at the right time, uh, there's no doubt that it's going to be a successful and profitable venture. Right, makes sense. So you guys looked in this IBS annual report and you were, you weren't even looking necessarily at, uh, or more bikes being sold, you're looking at specific, uh, I guess, parts of the bike to see if there were a lot more manufacturers, a lot more demand for certain parts. And because you saw that trending upwards, you you know made the conclusion that there's a growing bike, uh, bike market for this particular, I guess, style of bicycles that you guys are going after? Definitely, yeah. In that report, it was segmented between like mountain bikes, road bikes, like cruiser bikes, like all the different kinds of bikes. But they segmented the road bikes with that 700C okay. tire label. And we saw that on the upward swing um, and kind of caught along with that as well. And then it's just been great. I think we got a little bit lucky with all the other stuff, with the leisure bike market growing and with cities becoming more bike friendly and all that other stuff that's shifted along the past of the last seven years. Um, I think that was just a little bit of luck, but using that IBS report was a great, great starting point for the current market. Mm-hmm, makes sense. So, you know, given that your situation was that you guys couldn't necessarily get a lot of investment early on, uh, that probably capped your the kind of inventory that you're able to have on hand. And you were saying that you guys sold 100 bikes in person in the first run through. I'm imagining that you probably were had demand that outpaced your supply at that time. Was that what was going on? Like, did you guys have trouble fulfilling or keeping the store in stock early on? That was an issue since day one till this past year. Wow, um, okay. Yeah. It, we just grew so rapidly. Like We were one of the first people to do it, so we became really, really popular. And I mean, we figured out how to work around it with our order quantities, spacing them out, bringing over different container sizes, and then listing things for pre-sale on our website. Um, but it was an issue we had since day one. Yeah, that must be, I guess it's a good problem to have when you have more than you can, you have uh, more sales than you can necessarily fulfill right off the bat. So can you, you know, tell us? That's, li- that's what they say. They, <laughs> they, they say that. They're like, oh, that's a good problem to have. Everybody says that. But when it's four or five guys trying to manage a thousand orders that are coming in with customers that have been waiting for like 90 days and they're pissed and they're yelling at you and they're like, where's my bike? And things are slipping through the cracks and there's just all this crazy nonsense that's happening between a small team. I mean, it's a bad look for the brand. (laughs) I mean, we have some negative reviews out there, definitely. Um, But at the same time, it's a decent problem to have is the way that I would say it. It's a good from a sales perspective, but from a brand perspective, it's just really a lot to manage and to keep all the customers happy. can become a challenge. I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. And and, and um, I think I think maybe when people say that, they might not have gone down the route of what you guys did, which was pre-selling. Was that the issue? Was that you guys were pre-selling and then it might have taken longer than than you had expected to fulfill those orders? Was that the, the, the main issue? There was that issue. Um, there was that issue for sure. And then there was like, there's some other parts to our business too. Like we have some big uh, corporate clients, hotel clients. So what, mm. what would happen is we'd have bunch of bikes pre-sold and then a big hotel order would come through with like a reputable partner and we'd have to fulfill that and then we'd have to email some of the customers and be like hey sorry we're bringing in more bikes but your shipment's delayed a little bit because we had to give them away it was just it was a lot of stuff going on uh i mean since then that's all been ironed out with the additional funding that we have on to make sure that bikes never run out of stock so 
today we finally got that ironed out, but it was definitely a, a huge issue for us early on. Yeah, so I guess with most things, money helped you guys solve the problem. But if you could go back and maybe that still wasn't an option to get that funding that you needed, are there any particular changes in the way that you guys, I guess, did anything that you would try to change just to to help you manage that that process or that kind of growth, the growing pains a little bit uh, better? One of the things, one of the big things um, was our manufacturing. We had what at the time as young college kids we believe to be a reliable manufacturer. Um, and again, we were just like a group of five kids that tried to find a manufacturer in China on our own. That manufacturer turned out not to be so reliable. And that's a whole nother story that we don't really need to get into. Um, but since then, we've kind of learned by fire that we need to have someone reputable on the ground overseas basically all the time to be overseeing our factory, to be working with the QA and the QC team to be to be overseeing kind of the supply chain from manufacturing to port in LA to our warehouse in Ontario, California, like the whole entire supply chain process just need it needed to be properly managed by one person. Uh, and I think if we had done that, if we had just found someone who was going to specifically manage that entire process from the get go, a lot of these problems would have been mitigated. Um, and again, if we would have found a reputable manufacturer from the start of the business, a lot of problems wouldn't have occurred either. But just for reference, we've switched factories seven times since we've wow. started the business. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, this. That's not the first time I've heard of someone looking, learning this lesson, and then looking for almost like a liaison on the ground, like you were saying, at the you know over near the overseas manufacturer, or you know actually being inside the the facilities itself. So, can you tell us a little bit about how if someone out there that wants to make sure they have this kind of control, a little more control over their manufacturing, but can't be there themselves? How do you find somebody to to work with uh, that can offer these kind of services? Is there a particular job title that they're looking for or like what's the, the yeah. process? So the particular job title would be a sourcing agent. Uh, in terms of the process, I can't give you 100% the best recollection of that because for us it was very kind of simple. We asked around to friends and family and one of our friends of a friend happened to know this family that had been manufacturing things mm -hmm. overseas for years and we got in contact with them. They explained to us how the whole sourcing agent relationship works and about how this agent would be over there six months, seven months, eight months, nine months out of the year, whatever we needed. Um, fluent in both Chinese and English, um, Mandarin and Cantonese, able to communicate, know what to look for, able to negotiate. Uh, but the title would be a sourcing agent. I bet there's online searches you can do or forums you can dig through uh, to find someone who's recommended. But I would definitely go with someone who's been recommended to you because it can get a little bit sketchy at times. Yeah, I mean, those qualities that you just uh, listed sound like great kind of interview questions or things you should keep in mind when you are interviewing somebody, making sure they hit those or check all those boxes off. Um, so how do you, once you have a sourcing agent, how do you work with them? Like how, how often are you talking to them and what are you guys, uh, how do you guys work together? Uh, it's every single day. It's every single day. And that's more Jimmy's realm of things. Uh, but the basic overview is it's anything from R&D to bringing the cost of certain parts down to making sure we hit manufacturing schedules to deciding whether or not to buy our own tooling to make a part besides outsourcing it to another supplier, like cost-benefit analysis of that. Like it's, it's a full-on relationship. And I, again, I would love to speak to it more, but that's, that's more in Jimmy's realm of things. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. So yeah, let's let's um take a step back and go back to the back to the beginning again when you guys first got your <clears throat> initial production run. You said you you guys had a hundred bikes and you sold all of them in person. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, tell us about how you first. How did you get all of them over shipped over, and then what was the sales process like when you guys are selling these? We got literally the smallest container they make, and we put a hundred bikes in it, and we shipped it to Port of Long Beach, and we said, okay, we'll come pick it up. And we rented like a massive U-Haul, threw all the bikes in the U-Haul, drove it back to USC, put it in a frat house. And during that whole manufacturing and shipping to USC process, we were telling all our buddies, we're like, hey, we got these amazing bikes. They're not very expensive. You guys should buy one. And everyone was looking for a bike at the time. You know, we're on a massive college campus. And they're like, okay, instead of going to XYZ bike shop and buying something way too expensive or going to Craigslist and buying a beach cruiser that's probably going to get stolen... We're just going to buy one of your bikes. They're sleek. They look cool. They're fast. They're user-friendly. They're great for commuting. Here's, I think at the time, they were like $299 or something. Here, here's $299. Just call us when the bike gets here. And uh, all the bikes arrived at the house and called their buddies. We're like, hey, that bike is here. Here you go. Grab it. They'd come over and grab it. And then from there, it got a little bit more robust. We started ordering a bit more bikes. And... Uh, then we started, I think that's when we brought the shop online for the very first time is after that first hundred bike run. Mm, okay. So you definitely saw that there was demand for it because you're be able to sell it in person. And once you got that uh, store live, were you directing people there or like what was the initial kind of marketing early on when the early days to, to uh, drive um, traffic to your store? So it was always friends and family first. Um, if we had friends and family that wanted bikes, we were directing them to us in person to make the sale. And then we started to build that online presence. We started to pitch blogs. Like We went very organic, obviously, because we didn't have a ton of funding. Starting to pitch blogs, really started working our SEO. As I, as I said back in the day, the SEO was wild, wild west. So things for, like link wheels would work, just generating a ton of backlinks, like using some targeted meta tags. Like this was 2009, you know? This stuff was like, you could get a ton of traffic just by like some really, really organic, organic stuff. I mean... Now it's obviously changed a bunch with all the Google updates and them trying to push you more towards the AdWords and the SEM and the PLA stuff. But back in the day, for us to generate traffic was really, really simple. And is the um, PR, like you were saying, you were pitching blogs early on, is that still a approach that you guys take today? Or what are some, what are the, what are the, the kind of key marketing channels that you guys uh, use today now that you know, you're many years into the business? So that's kind of a two-part conversation. Um, the first part of that conversation relates to how we pivoted what we focus on in the business. And the second part is more so talking towards PR and how that uh, really helped our business shine. So yeah, PR is still a huge strategy. We still invest a lot into that and it's still really defining for our traffic and our brand and our business as a whole. But the messaging has changed a little bit and it's more so pitching that lifestyle vibe to the product and working with bloggers to create like, a story about fashion. For example, we did like a huge thing at New York Fashion Week two years ago where we got a bunch of influencers, bloggers, models, all riding these bikes around for New York Fashion Week. And we kind of pitched it to a bunch of high-end publications as like, oh my God, look at these beautiful bikes that all these models are riding at New York Fashion Week. Let's talk about how it's cool to get around New York by bike and how these models have been doing it. And like, so having that idea that we want to really bring our brand into a fashion-forward focus and really put a lot of resources into building out this aspirational lifestyle portion of the business and then taking that and bringing it to the publications that 
bringing it through the PR cycle has really been successful for us over the last couple of years. Yeah, I do want to dive into this a little bit more because like you're saying, you pivoted the, 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 I guess the way that you've wanted to portray the messaging for, for the company itself. Was that a difficult process? Like were people already seeing your brand, uh, you know, Soleil Bicycles in a certain light and then you wanted to change it, change it to a different kind of messaging or was there something else? Or I guess what, what, were you trying to do something other than that? So the, I'll go into kind of the reason why it all took place. So obviously we were the first people to kind of hone this idea of e-commerce bicycles, shopping experience, whatever. Uh, then people saw that it was becoming successful. So we had a bunch of competitors enter the space. And as the competitors entered the space, there were a lot of different kind of ideas. Some of the competitors were a little bit more tech-oriented, spec-oriented. Some of the competitors wanted to attack traditional bike shops more, but like wanted to just really squeeze them on margin. Uh, and so we saw it kind of becoming a race to the bottom uh, with a lot of these new competitors in there charging a lot less, whatever, making a lower quality product, um, whatever it was that they were doing. So we said, okay, what's our niche in this competitive landscape? And we had always, like myself personally, coming from a fashion background, a bunch of the other guys just being interested in fashion, action sport, fashion, action sport lifestyle, and other things like that, um, we just saw that as the necessary evolution of the brand. And at the same time, we were watching brands like Beats by Dre do the same thing in the headphone space, like taking what Bose and Sony and Panasonic had made for years and attaching this aspirational lifestyle messaging to that same product and selling it as a key to living kind of this elevated life. And uh, so we, we kind of tried to emulate those ideas and start speaking to our customer in that manner, like, hey, we're Soleil Bicycles of Venice Beach, California. And the thing is, it's very organic for us because we're all age 24 to 29. Uh, we all live in Venice Beach, California. We all do live this lifestyle that's very much so engaged in music, travel, having fun, like surfing, skateboarding, like all these different influences that we pull uh, to be our brand are very much so organic because it's things that we are really, really passionate about and do every day. And um, so the transition was a bit easy just because we were already immersed in those worlds and we could already pull those inspirations pretty easily. Um, and our customer was receptive to it. Uh, they liked what we were bringing. They liked the art, they liked the music, they liked the action sports, they liked all these things that we were doing, the fashion element of it. Uh, so the transition, it wasn't very challenging at all. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I like this. And this is this is something I've heard in the past too. Like you're saying, Beats by Dre did this because, and you guys did this because you you wanted to create this lifestyle brand to stand out amongst the competitors because a lot of people were coming into the space. Like you're saying, you guys were one of the first, but then when people saw the success of it, they, you know, you attract a lot of competitors when that happens. So what was it sounds like what was happening was that a lot of consumers weren't or might not be able to tell the difference between the products, between all the different bikes out there. You guys stopped selling the bike so much and focus more on selling the lifestyle, this aspirational lifestyle that you're talking about. And if the consumer wants to be part of that lifestyle, they needed the bikes. And that was like, is that the kind of approach now that you guys really push this lifestyle first and then as a byproduct, buy the bikes? Exactly. It. It's all about storytelling. It's all about telling the story about how a bicycle can lead to this amazing life of fun and being active and fashion and all this stuff. And then the bike is the center point. It's your mm. key to getting into this club or whatever you want to call it. And at that same time, funny enough, just from a design perspective, we introduced two stripes on the frame, two different colored stripes uh, on every bike frame that we make as our branding. So that kind of 
fell in place with the lifestyle. When people would ride around and they would see Soleil's, they would see our branded bike, they would see those two stripes first and they would know like, oh, okay, cool. They're part of this like club, I guess you would call it. The Soleil family, as we like to call it. Um, mm. And it kind of all came together and it, it just made a lot of sense. Yeah, I like that. And another brand that I've seen do as well is Patagonia, where they really just push the outdoor lifestyle. And a lot of people that buy their clothing don't have don't necessarily have the lifestyle, but they dream of a day where they could, you know, just be outdoors all the time. And because they can't do that, in the meantime, they're just going to buy the clothing and and be part of that lifestyle that way. I think it's a it's a great great approach. So I, I kind of want to uh, almost like dive a little deeper and talk about how this uh, approach changes the way that you got, that you guys or what you guys actually do on a day to day basis to uh, make sure that this lifestyle brand is uh, kind of the forefront. Uh, like it, you know, other than I guess a lot of the content is going to be important, like creating lifestyle based content is something that you've spoken about, and then. Obviously, the PR is now about pushing the lifestyle rather than the bikes itself. Can you give us some more examples of what you might be doing day to day or maybe week to week that helps you guys uh, push this lifestyle? Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I'm sure everyone's talked about it. Content marketing is king. Um, it's the best way to do it. Creating interesting, engaging, shareable content that can reach a large audience is our goal. Um, we want to create things that are very awesome, very shareable. And so I guess I'll just go into a quick case study of one thing that we created that has been extremely, extremely successful for us. So we created this content piece. It's a monthly content series called The Fixed Tapes. Uh, and what it is, is it's a curated mixtape of music uh, by a different DJ each month that, an, or that anyone can pop in their headphones and ride their bike to. That's the idea behind it. And so basically what it does is a few things. It creates a really, really cool piece of music um, that people can listen to, which is awesome, shareable, downloadable, whatever it is. It ties our brand to these cool up-and-coming DJs, which builds brand synergy in the eyes of our followers. And then it's distributed through these DJs' followings as well as through various music blogs. So you have these DJs that have a couple hundred thousand followers that are now getting this mix that's co-sponsored by the two of us in front of their face, and they're like, oh, what's Soleil Bicycles? Like, let's check this out. They get put into our sales funnel by having to come to our site to download the mix, and then we have an email grab and a Facebook grab in order to be able to download it as, like, a like barrier. Um, and so these mixes, they garnish hundreds of thousands of impressions, and we do one every month. So it's just it's a spiral kind of viral marketing tool that we've used, and it's, it's opened so many doors for us to work with music festivals, to work with music blogs, to do sponsorships, giveaways, partnerships, and just, just all this content that we've created in the music scene alone. And then also we replicate that same kind of idea in the art sector by creating art bikes, which is when we give a bike to an artist. And I'm not going to go into like, I could go on and on forever about these different things that we do and all these ideas that we have, but um, it's just about creating that content that's shareable, downloadable, amazing, and organic too. Like not something that feels forced at all, but something that people can go out and actually use on a day-to-day basis or read and get a feeling from. Uh, that's really been a focus of our kind of day-to-day, month-to-month strategy. 
Yeah, and I think to make this uh, applicable for anybody, can you tell us about how you approach these PR outlets or other partners that you work with to pitch them on this? Because obviously, you know, these guys are probably getting pitched all the time, especially the PR outlets or the blogs to cover different products. But you guys are coming at them with um, almost like a content piece first rather than the product first. Does that make it For easier sure. or harder? Or like what's the, 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 I guess the difference that you've experienced? Our primary objective when working with a media outlet influencer whatever it is in the PR realm is to collaborate so we don't go at them and be like hey here's our product like we want to send you on review it and like write a review about our product that's not our strategy that's they get that all the time they get thrown clothing all the time they get thrown sunglasses all the time whatever it is our strategy is like okay what are your users really like like what are pieces that you've written in the past that have been successful is it top five places in this city to go to brunch is it like what's trending in fashion this month, shop this look. And we gauge that information from them. And then we sit down and we're like, okay, cool. Here's a cool content piece that we can help you guys produce that focuses around our bike, but also is something that's going to work for your users based on what's worked for your users in past. So one of the things we found really, really successful is working with different uh, bloggers and outlets to create city guides, like exploring your city by bike. And then we help them kind of curate a bunch of different bike-friendly locations, whether it's bars, restaurants, outdoor attractions, um, whatever that is. And then they tell the story about how they were able to go about the city using our bike to visit all these attractions and have like an amazing day. Um, so it's, it's really a collaborative effort. And I think that's kind of what sets us apart in the realm of PR from most people is that most people just want to chuck product and we want to actually work with the editor, with the publisher, with the influencer to create something that's a bit more meaningful. Mm, makes a lot of sense. So how do you measure the success of something like this? Because it sounds like uh, it's not like an ad where you click on it, all of a sudden you, you are able to buy something. Yours seems to have a longer kind of sales and marketing funnel that the cu- customer goes through. So how, do you, how, do you, how do you keep track of this kind of, um, the success of a campaign like this? Well, laced within a lot of these articles, there is a direct response by uh, kind of call to action. So we gauge all that information through Google Analytics and through different KPIs we have set up. Um, but besides that, if it's just like a pure brand recognition article, we usually gauge that by like engagement, like number of shares, number of mm-hmm. likes, number of comments. Uh, and we assign a value to that as well, um, just from a pure branding standpoint and a pure brand awareness standpoint. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. Through all the direct response traffic, we use Google Analytics. Everything else is just an internal gauge. And then, obviously, we use some reporting metrics to get the validity of a site, of a publication um, that are out there. But that's kind of the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. So for the direct response stuff, is it like a a discount code or something for them to use? Or are you tracking the clicks to the site? How do you, uh, what what exactly are you you tracking when when you are actually trying to get close a sale, I guess, right off of the, the content piece? It's both of those, yeah. For sure. It's, cool. uh, we do discounts with some publications every now and again. just depends like what our promotion schedule looks like. And then uh, the other end of things is definitely just clicks, impressions, time on site, tracking users through the whole funnel experience. 
Right, makes sense. So when you talk about these uh, content marketing pieces that you've created, you know, when you look at music, fashion, and that kind of content, and then you look at bikes on paper, it doesn't seem like it all fits. But then when you explain it, when I see it on your site, it does make sense. But so for someone out there that doesn't have this all pieced together yet, but they do want to find a different angle on how they can promote their products rather than pitching the product itself and going this content route, how does someone figure out like, what kind of content they should be creating if they want to basically emulate what you guys have done? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, it can vary. Um, my thought or my vision is always just be yourself. Uh, do whatever you're interested in and whatever the brand says to you and then be really authentic about it and then stem it out from there. So I'm not going to give a direct example, but there are a lot of different things that can work. And try to do something different than everyone else is doing in the space. Uh, anyone can create kind of the same run-of-the-mill infographic, but what are you going to create that really represents your brand and is really interesting and unique to you and sets you apart from someone else selling a similar product? Yeah, I think you said two things. You said one thing just now, one thing before that I think uh, listeners can use, which is that you guys collaborate with uh, blogs and influencers because they have a lot of data too, right? They have Google Analytics or whatever analytics set up on their site and they can see what are po- what's popular. You can even go see yourself and look at what's being shared, what's being engaged with the most for a particular outlet that you want to collaborate with and just create something similar to that or, or to, that would have similar effects to that. And then the second thing was that you said, don't do what, what everyone else is doing. And I hundred percent agree with that. And what you could do even is look at what other industries, what other brands, other industries are doing. And I think you guys got inspiration, for, like you're saying from Beats by Dre, where they focus more on creating this lifestyle brand, totally different industry, but you still can learn a lot from them. And it's the best way really not to, to not become a copycat when you start looking at outside industries and seeing what they're doing and bringing it inside your own industry. And it's kind of a great way that I've seen a lot of stores and I've seen that work, you know, numerous times. And and when you look for inspiration like that. Um, So cool. Uh, One thing, one last thing I want to, not one last thing, but one other thing I want to touch on before we move on was about uh, going back to the direct to consumer model that you guys have created. So I'm starting to see this a lot more and more uh, often because, you know, the growth of e-commerce, I think uh, mattresses, it was a big thing recently. And I see that a lot now where they're cutting out the middlemen for, for, uh, from the the process. Um, How do you know, well, first, do you think this can work in any industry where you can cut out the middleman and sell directly to, to the consumer? And maybe how would you, if you were to start a new company from scratch, like what kind of things would you look at to see if you could uh, cut the middleman and go direct to a consumer? Yeah, I think the big thing is just to look for an industry that's ripe for disruption. Um, look at a product that you believe can be manufactured for way less than the markup is at retail. Uh, and mattresses is a huge one. That's, that's like the biggest one now. It's like people, they looked at the mattress industry and they saw Sealy and Serta and Tempur-Pedic and Foster, whatever, whatever the mattress was being sold at retail. They said the raw inputs of this mattress, of creating this mattress, cannot be this expensive. And so then you go back and you say, okay, where, why is it so expensive? So there's a markup for the distributor, and then there's a markup for the physical shop itself. And those are usually 50% each. So you're adding 100% markup to this product. So now you can take that, design the product from the ground up yourself, make your own version of it, and then sell it directly online 
and pass those savings on to the consumer. Fashion's a big one too. Like you look at Everlane or Bonobos or Warby Parker, the same people that have looked at a business model or looked at the, the traditional retail model and said, okay, sun, sunglasses can't be that expensive. Why is Ray-Ban selling them for a couple hundred bucks? Because Luxottica owns mm. the entire distribution model right. and then Warby went and disrupted that, you know? So that, that's kind of the goal is to find a product you think can be made way, way cheaper and that you assume the distribution model is tacking a lot of marginal markup to, go back, make it yourself, brand it yourself, sell it online and cut out a lot of that markup. And this is all, you know, once you have this kind of hunch, you can confirm all this too, right? Just by doing research and and making some phone calls to determine if they are marking it up way more than, than they were marking up so much that you could come in and sell direct to consumer. Yeah, you definitely, you'll know. Uh, you'll definitely, definitely know. Cool. So, um, you know, you guys have been in business for, again, this year coming up on your seventh year. Can you tell us a little bit about how successful is a business today and give us an idea of the growth over the last uh, several years? Yeah, we've grown 100% year over year, uh, every single year, which has been amazing. That's kind of the benchmark that we've always wanted to hit. And uh, I mean, today, like, I'm not going to sit here and say we're, we're happy with where we're at um, because we're content, but we're not happy. We want to keep growing the business. I mean, today, now we're selling anywhere between ten to 15,000 bikes a year. Uh, we ship bikes to every state in the U.S. We've shipped bikes to 26 countries overseas. Um, we have a retail shop, shop in Venice. We have a retail shop in Atlanta. That's like a sole guide shop where basically you can come and try the bikes, um, check one out or leave with one if you really want to. Um, we used to have one in New York, but we just recently closed that. Uh, yeah, so we've seen a ton of growth and just hitting that 100% year-over-year number has been amazing. Um, and I think that our goal now is just we have a couple goals. One of them is to refine our e-commerce experience and really just take over as that name brand for leisure bikes online, fashion-forward leisure bikes online, and then start moving international. Uh, we have a couple targets set of places that we want to set up like hubs, distribution hubs, and really start catering towards those markets and make this a global business. But uh, I think there's definitely a lot of room for growth there. And then there's also a lot of room for growth in our product line, creating new bikes that are fun and friendly and fashion forward and all the things that I said a million times. I'm sure it's <laughs> sounding like a broken record. Uh, but yeah, I think we've been extremely happy with the growth and we just want to keep on, keep on going. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, you got introduced to me by Corey, who was on the woodies.com uh, uh, podcast episode that we recorded, that recorded probably about a month ago. And he said that he bumped, he met you because you guys were both traveling and uh, running businesses at the same time. And th before we hit record, you were talking about how that's something that you guys really, you know, love being able to do is to travel and still be able to run your business from a laptop. Can you tell us a little about that experience? Like, are there any kind of, um, I guess, difficulties when you're out and traveling in other countries and trying to run a business? There are some difficulties for sure. Time differences, traveling through strange places without Wi-Fi, whatever, whatever that difficulty is. But it's just about having a proper balance, you know, having that proper like traveling, but still knowing that at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you're taking care of the business, you're making the proper steps to watch it grow, and you're managing it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I mean, I would honestly say that, funny enough, Corey is someone who does that better than anyone else I know. Uh, the guy could be in, in the middle of the most remote place 
and still be organizing a photo shoot with the one photographer in this village and still be posting content. <laughs> he's, he's just an animal like that, you know, and there's a lot to be learned from him. And I've learned a lot from him personally um, on how you can do that. And it was crazy. We were actually over in Bali for a couple of weeks in Indonesia um, last year. And Corey and I linked up when we were over there. We, we had known each other before that, but we linked up and all of a sudden he's like, Hey, I rented this vintage Volkswagen. Like I got these models. I got a photographer. You got, do you have any bikes? Like, let's do this. And I'm like, all right, dude, let's, like, let's go. You put it all together. Like, sounds awesome. Let's do it. And we went out and shot for a whole day in the middle of nowhere and got like amazing content that I never would have thought would have been that easy to put together on the road, traveling on a tight budget. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's definitely a balance and it's about finding ways. But at, at the same time, there's so much inspiration that we take uh, when mm. we travel. You know, there's so many things in other countries that we bring into our product and into our brand that without that ability to travel and ability to see the world would be lacking. And we just, it helps us as creative and it helps us as marketers and as designers and all that stuff. So we think that it's just infinitely important. Yeah, that, that's really important. It kind of goes back to what we were saying before about how you can really get stuck in these echo chambers if you're too focused on your own industry rather Definitely. than like, you know, taking a step back and having this perspective that you're talking about. Um, so yeah, so I, I imagine that there are probably a lot of apps that you rely on to run your business. Can you tell us a little bit about any apps that you either use from the Shopify app store or outside of it that help you run the business? Yeah, we use a ton on the Shopify app store. Um, there's a lot of really good ones for um, marketing and sales cycle and inventory management and uh, stuff like that. I mean, I'm not going to go into specifics, but a simple Google search of like top 15 Shopify apps for marketing will give you like a good starting point. Um, but it, besides uh, that, one of the biggest ones that we, two of the biggest ones that we just implemented are uh, Slack, which is a great inner office communication app that really helps us be all on the same page when we're traveling, uh, especially because we can send files through there. We can start different threads like hashtag marketing, hashtag content, whatever it is, uh, and have like inner office communications even when people are displaced. Um, and then the other one is Basecamp for long-term product man or project management. We handle everything from like manufacturing R&D pipeline to sales pipeline, to content calendar and everything in Basecamp. Uh, so just like getting some good communication apps for sure doing some research online to find good Shopify apps for sales, marketing, or operations. There's a ton of resources out there to find those apps and a lot of good reviews and a lot of good uh, portals to really read more into those apps. Um, but yeah, besides Shopify, the two biggest are definitely Slack and Basecamp. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. So soleilbicycles.com, S-O-L-E-B-I-C-Y-C-L-E-S.com is the website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with your brand? Definitely check out the website. Definitely check out the Instagram at Soleil Bicycles. Check out the Facebook Soleil Bicycle Co. Um, subscribe to the newsletter so you can get all the fixed tapes, all the cool content we're pushing out. Yeah, I think that's a, that about sums it up. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit Shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.